In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. Hello and welcome to Trauma-Informed Support. I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Educators are among the most important influence on a child, but it's no secret that controlling behaviour issues in the classroom are what teachers struggle with most. Children's emotional and life challenges can create problem behaviours that may seem complex, but when a student's behaviours are monitored and evaluated correctly, educators can discover the appropriate intervention to modify the problem behaviour. The modifications you make in your classroom can set a child up for success or failure. But are some children simply too challenging to respond to such classroom modifications? Today, I speak with Dr Laura Riffle. With more than 30 years of experience, Dr Riffle has trained thousands of teachers, parents, counsellors, psychologists, administrators and bus drivers how to make data-based decisions as a way to change behaviour. Her trainings are filled with humour and make data collection easy to understand and use in any setting. I hope you find this interview informative and inspiring. Dr Laura Riffle, welcome to the TIPBS podcast. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with you. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me to join you and to talk about my favorite subject. Yes, it's great. (laughs) Wonderful. So I was wondering if we could start by talking about your background and what you've brought to working in the area of challenging behavior and positive behavior support. Okay. Um, You've kind of mentioned where I started and I've taught every single grade pre-K through adult in general ed and special ed over the years. Uh, which education was a perfect thing as an adult with ADHD, um, we get bored easily and need challenges. So in education, it's really easy to try a different grade level, push yourself to do something different. So that's why I've taught so many different grade levels. But the thing I'm probably, there's two things I'm most proud of, and that is in the state of Georgia, I ran a statewide program called the Behavioral Intervention Program, and we had five full-time behavior therapists who worked there, and if you had a student anywhere in the state who had a behavior, um, so if you were a parent, a daycare center, a school, um, a residential center, you could contact us and for free one of our behavior therapists would come out to your location and we would help you figure out the function behind the child's behavior and help you put a plan in place. And we would stay with you until we had at least an 80% reduction from baseline. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was amazing. Uh, We could have served a lot more than we did, but you know, I had to keep the numbers manageable for the behavior therapists who were doing that. While my staff were out doing that, I ran a day clinic for the most severe children, and we brought the kids into the clinic, and we were very successful at being able to 
transition them back into their home school and then restabilizing them after that transition and then reverse integrating a class around this highly trained team of teachers that we had worked with and this very stable child. And that, I'm very proud of that. Mm. Yeah, it was amazing and just so heart fulfilling to have that happen. The other thing I'm so proud of is that my husband and I, actually our whole family, we chose to live with an adult who had autism and his name was Jay Turnbull. And if you've read very many special education books, you know who the Turnbulls are. They're some of the most wonderful people in the world and their son wanted to live on his own and they needed housemates in order to make that happen. And when my husband and I became empty nesters yeah. and our kids were in college, we didn't like the empty nest syndrome. And so we asked Dan and Rod if we could live with Jay. And uh, we loved it so much. We had decided we were going to live with Jay until we needed to go to the nursing home. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jay passed away in 2008, and we lost him to a sudden coronary heart attack. But he was the best teacher that we ever had in our entire lives. Um, he taught me what it's like to live with a disability and how to build a quality life for that person. And so, what a wonderful experience! It really is. Mm. And then. What kind of led me to PBIS, I'll just try to tell you this story very quickly. Uh -huh. When I was in school um, for kindergarten, my mother had to take me to school every day and drop me off. And one day she didn't come back and get me, which was quite disconcerting to a five-year-old child. And eventually my grandmother got there and picked me up and she was real nervous and upset about something. And uh, when we got home, my mom was in the waiting room crying and yeah. she kept saying over and over again if only I'd said hold on if only I'd said hold on and uh I went and she was beside herself and my little brother my two-year-old brother was in the family room and my grandfather was stabbing him with campo finique. he was a giant scab from head to toe what had happened uh, my mother had dropped me off that morning and as she was leaving the school my little two-year-old brother opened up the car door as she was going around a corner, and she said the words, don't let go. But what my brother heard was, let go. Oh, so, no. Yeah, rolled down the hill and became a giant scab. And my mother, you know, she internalized this as her fault if she just said it a different way, but it made her analyze her parenting, and she realized that kids don't hear that first word, that don't stop quit no and so from that point forward my mother changed her parenting style and she told us other kids will do this here's what I want you to do instead there are always these horrible other kids who would make bad decisions mm. and she would tell us what she wanted us to do so as I was learning how to be a teacher and I the people that I watched said don't stop quit no that didn't quite fly with me <laughs> I was raised and then I heard about this thing they were trying called PBIS positive behavior interventions and supports and they said we're going to tell the kids what to do instead of what not to do and that was like ding 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 it made so much sense to me mm. and I just jumped right on that bandwagon and just so you don't think my mother's horrible we didn't have <laughs> 
belts and car seats back in the 50s. No, no, you wouldn't have. No, not Just at all. The way it was, you know. So. Yeah. It's a wonder yeah. um, we all survived it all, really, isn't it? Think, yes, you it know, is. <laughs> When you look back, but, yeah, clearly we did. I remember <laughs> I used to sit in the front seat, um, yes, no seatbelt, while my mother um, knitted with knitting needles on oh our car trips because I used to get car sick, so I was always put right at the front because I was the littlest, no seatbelt, no nothing, and my mother sat beside me knitting with two knitting needles. Awesome. Yeah. We but, all you know, survived. We did, thankfully, yes. And now you can't even leave the hospital without, you know, a very special kind of gate. No, that's right. Safety helmet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So can you, Laura, talk to us about the multi-tiered systems of support? Sure. I kind of look at everything in life in a multi-tiered system of support. But in every setting, whether it's your school, your daycare center, your home, any public arena, there are three layers of support that need to happen. We just can't hold kids accountable for behaviors if we haven't taught them what those behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like. And so I talk to people about what I call the TIP method, which kind of goes with your theme, uh -huh. um, but I call tip, you have to teach it, you know, and you can't just say be good, you've got to teach, this is what I mean by being respectful, responsible, and prepared, or whatever it is that your focus is, yeah. and then you have to imprint it by modeling, and that's the I in the tip, because so often the schools that I work with, they'll have the words up on the wall, be respectful, your teachers in the hallway where kids could overhear saying things that are not very respectful about each other or you know just something so we've got to imprint it by modeling it for the kids and then we have to practice it with them and so like if we want to talk about behavior on the bus we need to bring a bus out to the school and show them what it looks like sounds like and feels like on that bus and then the last P in my tip, because it's T-I-P-P, -P, is praise approximations when you see it. And a lot of people don't really like that one because they're like, well, kids should, you know. Do it because they should do it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you know what's of extrinsic value or internal value, sorry, if you're not extrinsically motivated by the where you are, um, in the first place to internalize this. Uh -huh. So if you think about a baby learning how to walk, when you first learned how to walk, people clapped and cheered and you knew you were on to something. Yeah, like, that's right. That's why you keep doing it. Yeah. And now, you know, I walk everywhere from point A to point B and nobody claps or cheers for me because I internalized that that was a really good way to get around. Mm. Um, and you'll know that a kid has moved to that because if you go to give them a compliment, they'll go, oh, that's okay. It was just the right thing to do. Yes. And then, yes. you know, that kid's moved to internalizing these uh, behaviors. But so that's the general, what we call universal level. Mm -hmm. And there are the kids who need booster shots. And I just call that the booster shot, tier two. These yep. are the kids that you just need to remind. Now, remember, before we go out in the hallway, where do our hands and feet need to be? Or maybe you have a secret signal with a student. For instance, I had a child who his ADHD was very hyper, and sometimes his hyperactivity would be very disruptive to all the kids around him. And so he and I had a secret signal. If I tugged on my ear, he needed to check himself 
make sure he wasn't bothering someone around him. And that way, only he and I knew that secret signal, but it was like a tier two intervention because it was his booster shot that helped him. And then yeah. there are, so he also got the universal supports. Everybody gets those, but he on top of that had the tier two little booster shot. Um, and they're so easy to do those things and teachers do them naturally and don't even realize that they're doing a tier two intervention. And then there's a very small number of students who need those tier three interventions. And those are more intensive. And it might be that we made a video of what raising your hand and waiting to be called on looks like, sounds like, and feels like. And it's a video self-modeling video that we made in private. You know, maybe we invited the student to eat lunch with us. Um, and we made this quick video and we call the parents in and we ask the parents to show that video at home before they come to school. And then we give them booster shots during the day and little reminders. And then at night when the child comes home, the parent might ask them, how did you do today remembering to raise your hand and wait to be called then? And maybe the teacher wears like a bright red bracelet on their wrist and um, every time they want students to raise their hand, they hold up that, their hand in the air with that bright red bracelet and they've taught that kid in private to cue into that red bracelet. Yeah, which is a great visual yeah. reminder, isn't it? Yeah, we need mm. environmental cues to help the kids. I mean, it could be a whole bunch of things. It could be, a, you know, a behavior rating sheet. It could be self-regulation, a little card, and they wear a watch that vibrates every 15 minutes, and they just make a tally if they haven't been up out of their seat, wandering mm. around the whatever it is that you're working on. And I just, for me, it's just so fun to think up something that is age appropriate and doesn't single the child out. Yes. Like nobody else knows that mm. the child's got this plan. But I think of it this way, and I think this is a great thing for people to think about. I fly, I'm on the road 220 days a year, going all over, um, presenting on behavior, my favorite topic. <laughs> and um, so I fly a lot. And every time I get on the airplane, the flight attendant stands in the middle of the aisle and she holds up a seatbelt and she says, this is the seatbelt. To fasten the seatbelt, you insert the flat end into the buckle. To release the seatbelt, you lift up on the buckle. You know, and the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's ridiculous that's a seatbelt um, but after they go through that little spiel and they say that they absolutely cannot take off until everybody has their seatbelt on I look down the aisle and there's a whole pile of people hanging to put their seatbelt on and the flight attendant has to walk down the aisle and give booster shots to the adult world um, you know, put your seatbelt on seatbelt on put your seatbelt on and on that same airplane there's that one person who needs intensive support you know and they have to lean over and say I'm sorry that your building's burning down but you need to get off your telephone um, yes you take off. so the the levels of support you know they're alive and well at school which we talk about all the time but if you just start looking in the world they're alive and well everywhere we go in the adult world so it's not a surprise that kids need help uh, when the adults need the same booster shots and intensive support. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, it just, it's hard for me to go anywhere and not think about the levels of support. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great example. 
Um, so for those um, folk listening, and we'd have teachers listening and undergraduate students learning to be teachers, what key elements of thinking functionally about behaviour do you think teachers um, particularly need to know so that they can utilise that in their classroom? I think the first thing that we need to help everybody understand is that they don't need to do something immediately unless a child's in danger. Um, we need to learn how to take a deep breath and uh -huh. think about that behavior and think, because for me, that was the hardest thing in learning how to do. But what I've trained myself to do is to think this behavior is happening for a reason. It's communication. This kid is communicating something to me somewhere, somehow, someone taught them that this behavior had a particular payoff. And it's like, for me, it's like learning the child's secret code. Yeah. It's like trying to figure out what this kid, whether they're trying to get access to attention. And I'm going to talk about each one of these just a little bit because I think this is the thing that I teach to new teachers and even to veteran teachers who've been teaching for a long time because sometimes we forget this. Mm -hmm. We kind of focus on two things. There are three things that kids are, might be trying to get. They might be trying to get attention. They might be trying to get access to a preferred item or a preferred activity. And the last one on the to get side is they might be trying to gain sensory input. And this is one we don't talk much about at the pre-service level. And it's really big with us and with kids. I know when you're teaching in your college classes, you look out and you see people giving themselves proprioceptive input. They're fidgeting, they're fiddling with things, they're doodling um, to mm. help themselves be able to sit and pay attention. And we need to understand that we haven't taught kids how to do that in a socially appropriate way. So those are the things that kids are trying to get and the things that they might be trying to avoid. And these are the biggest ones. There's some others, but they might be trying to avoid work. And it might be because the work is too difficult or because they're dealing with something emotional that's too much to be able to take on new information at the moment. They might be trying to avoid attention. Usually it's from the adults because the adults are going to ask them to do something that they might not feel comfortable doing. But they might be trying to avoid other children. And it might be um, because their mom doesn't do laundry as frequently as most moms do and they had to pick up dirty clothes out of the and wear dirty clothes and they know that they smell a little and they don't want to get around other kids because they smell. There's just, I mean, it's like playing detective. I call it uh, being a CSI agent, not a crime scene investigator, but a causal science investigator. Yeah. We're always trying to decipher what it is. And the next one is really big because it's hard. Kids don't wear shirts that announce these things. But kids have behavior because they're trying to avoid emotional pain or physical pain, especially for really young kids or kids who don't use words yet. Um, it, you know, they don't have enough words to explain the pain that they're in. Yep. They don't wear shirts that say mom and dad had a huge fight last night or we got kicked out of our apartment and our furniture's on the front lawn and I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. And so again, being that detective and figuring out 
those things. And then the last thing that kids might be trying to avoid is too much sensory coming in. And I, I always find it amazing um, how many people are bothered by noises and we'll talk about different little noises. And I'm like, okay, imagine hearing that 10 times louder, that one noise that drives you over the edge. You know, like for me, it's someone popping gum. And I tell them, you know, my headphones save lives on the plane because people tend to chew gum on the airplane and they oh, start yes, I do. nervous. So my proactive strategy is to put those headphones in and block out their gum popping. Mm. Um, but I want to go back to one of the big ones that I always hear, and I'm sure you hear this as well. And, and those of you that are listening, I bet you hear this in the staff lounge frequently. Uh, we hear they're just doing it to get attention. Yes. And I can't hear that so much. Mm. But I, I want to tell you, and I think this is so important for everybody to remember proactively that it's true kids do want attention, but we need to understand why. As a society, we've decreased face time by 63% since the 1950s. Um, when I was a kid, we sat at the dining room table only rich people had television sets, and if they had a TV, they had one, not one in every room. Oh, no, no, just one. Or you went to the neighbours and watched theirs if you were invited. <laughs> yeah, and so we got a lot of FaceTime with our family, and we didn't have screen games to play. We played outside, and we hugged each other, and we made, we dug in the ground, and we're going to dig dig to the other side of the world, and, uh. you know, those kinds of things, and so we got eye contact, and now, you know, my husband and I, we go out to eat 220 nights a year, um, which sounds great until you actually have to do it. Do it, yeah. <laughs> we'll go to a restaurant, and there'll be eight people sitting at a table, and it's not easy to get eight people together, and you'll look over, and all eight people are looking at their phone. Fine. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. yeah. It's interesting you say that. I was at a conference in um, Northern Territory a little while ago, and one of the cafes had a big um, chalkboard sign out the front that said, pretend it's the 1980s, put your mobile phone away and talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, and, and we just, oh, my daughter and I just, we about had a little hissy fit. We were shopping for a baby gift, and we noticed that the new strollers that came out have an attachment for the iPad. Oh, no, so we're not going to talk to them at all. No, <laughs> and so how sad is that? So back to why I started this. Um, so kids are desperate for eyeballs. And if we give it to them on the front side, they won't take it on the back side. So this is the proactive part of this that I want teachers to utilize in their classroom. Mm -hmm. What we found in the schools that I've worked with and the teachers that I've worked with, that if you will stand at your door and greet your students every hour, or every time they come back at the elementary level, secondary every hour the new group comes in, Yep. elementary every time they come back from somewhere. And I tell them to do Tums, and that's the T stands for touch them with a high five, you know, just a nice high yep. five or a handshake. Use their name in a positive way. Um, you know, how was PE, Charmaine, you know, or glad to see you today, Ferris. Um, you know, just show that you – 
maybe took a little interest in something. Did your dad get that carburetor put in a car last night? We pick up little pieces on kids. And then the M in Tom stands for make eye contact. So give it on the front side. And then the S stands for smile. Because we're so busy thinking sometimes, we don't think about what we're doing with our faces. And no. sometimes our faces don't look very friendly. And kids get most of their information about us from our body language. And so I think it's really important for us to make sure we're smiling. Um, anyway, teachers who have done this have found a 45 to 72% less disruptions in their classroom. So if you give the eyeballs on the front side, they won't take it on the back side. Yeah. So it's worth the three minutes, and we've timed it. Three minutes is all it takes to do this. And if you think about how long a disruption stops learning, that three minutes is money well spent. It's a great return on investment. Mm. So um, I think that if I, if I could only share one thing, I think that's the best return on investment you can get is to put in the time up front, knowing that a good deal of the behavior is coming from kids wanting attention and giving it on the front side. And the older the kids are, the more important that is because 72% of teens, their main mode of communication is texting. So 72%. 72%. Their main mode, or maybe 73%, I might not be remembering that exactly. It was 72 or 73% of teens, their main mode of communication is texting. And if we put iPad holders on baby strollers, imagine what that's going to be by the time those kids are teenagers. It's, <sighs> it's scary to think. It is, isn't it? It really is. Mm. So if I could only share one piece of advice that would be um that would be it. proactively you know what they're trying to what's the function of the behavior what are they trying to get and what can you put in place before that behavior has a chance to happen yeah and i think greeting them at the door uh, is just going to make a world of difference three them. minutes <laughs> it's not well well worth every day is it yeah that's wonderful. Thank you. So I guess you, you, in a way you've answered this a little bit. So what are the, some of the challenges that teachers face who I have come across quite a few who are trying to implement their um, concept of positive behaviour support in their classroom, but it's not supported by the school as a system. So they've seen the value in, in um, positive behaviour support, but the school's not really on board. So they're sort of trying to do it in isolation. So, right. Yeah. And, and it is really hard to do that. But the thing I tell them when, when they're talking to me about that is that success sells. And I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's a fourth grade teacher and um, she's really into PBIS or PBS and her school is not buying into it too much. But she did everything that she knew she was supposed to do. She came up with expectations for her classroom. Uh -huh. She taught it. She imprinted it by modeling. She practiced with the kids. She praises it when she sees it. Um, she gives out little love notes that say you were caught exhibiting XYZ behavior and hands it out to kids. And um, she made videos with the kids. Well, now it's... Um, November and her kids are all still following the expectations 
Um, they're supposed to walk on a certain side of the hallway. They're supposed to have their hands a certain way. They're supposed to stop at the stop signs when they get to corners and look both ways before they cross the hallway. And they're not, yeah, and they're not supposed to go inside the classroom until the teacher um, sends them in. That way kids aren't inside a classroom without adult supervision. Well, all the other teachers, their kids are running in the classrooms and running past stop signs in the oh hallways. Yep. And at, uh, a, uh, fac- at a grade level meeting, the other fourth grade teacher said, how come your kids are doing what they're supposed to be doing and ours aren't? And she said, well, let me tell you about this thing called PBS. And so she's actually been able to sell it to the other fourth grade teachers. And now it's starting to catch on. People are seeing, you know, the value in taking the time to do these things because, like I ask teachers all the time, I say, you know, they'll go, I shouldn't have to do that. Kids should just know. No, how to behave. I don't get paid to do this, yes. I know. And I always say, how's that working out for you? And someone said, oh, you sound like Dr. Phil. And I didn't know who he was. So I watched him. and, And it is a good question. I mean, if it's working, go ahead. But if it's not working, why not try why doing it? <laughs> <laughs> you see is working well. But it, I, the thing I have to say is just remember success sells. And you just plug along and do what you know is right and let your kids be the shining example. Um, you know, I used to tell my kids, and this was probably an awful thing to say, but I used to tell them it was a secret they couldn't tell anybody else, but that the principal liked me better than everybody, and he always gave me the best kids. And they just walked around like they were little angels because they thought they were the best kids. Yeah, they, they, they were special. Yeah, all <laughs> special and chosen. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it probably wasn't really very nice because – they probably were out on the playground thinking they were better than everyone else. But um, it, it did just change their attitude because it was like, you know, I expect you to be role models because you're the mm. best. Mm. Um, and kids will rise to that occasion. And then when the other teachers see that, they'll want to buy into the that's program. Right. Yeah. That's what used to happen at the behavior intervention program. We would come in and help with one student and we would help them look at the data and figure out the function of the behavior. And once that student, and usually it was a student everybody in the whole school knew because of their behavior, all of a sudden I'd get five referrals from that school because they saw the success and what that one teacher did by collecting the data. And that's when I would call the principal and say, hey, can I come in and do an all-day training on functional behavior assessment and teach the whole staff? Because you've got five people who are interested in that right at this moment and want us to come in. And that's a better use of your time to let me come in and train everybody what function-based behavior support is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, empower all the team and upskill the whole lot. Yeah, right. So just remember, success sells. You'll get, you'll get them. Yes, that's great. Success sells. Yes, and we'll remember to do our tums and success sells. Yeah. Mm, now, in in your book of um, Red Level Positive Behaviour Support at the Tertiary Level, you talk about teachers causing their own pain. Can you just elaborate on that? 
Yeah, it sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> no, but it rings very true when you read that title, Teachers Cause Their Own Pain, because we sometimes neglect to look at our teacher behaviour and project right. all of the blame onto the child. Right, and it's very easy for me to come in and sit back, and so I try to be very delicate in how I say it. But it's kind of like we don't notice things. Like, think about as your kids were growing up, you didn't notice how tall they were getting until some distant aunt comes that hasn't seen them for months and months, and they go, oh, my gosh, you've grown like a weed. And all of a sudden, you look at your child, and you're like, oh, my gosh. You're so they have. <laughs> But you're there day to day, and that same thing happens in the classroom. We don't realize that we're doing some of the things that we're doing that are causing us pain. And I could give a million examples, but one, um, we, we got a referral on a little girl that was burping the alphabet. And I know that's not the worst thing in the world, but it, it was really obnoxious, like it made you feel ill kind of burping. Mm, oh, he was yeah. really good at it, and you know, it was pretty disruptive. And the teacher, when she referred her, she said she does it all day, every day. There's no rhyme or reason. And so um, we came in and we took 10 days of data. And we found that every time there was a transition, this little girl started burping the alphabet. And uh, it happened 20 times in 10 days that she did this. So about twice a day. Mm -hmm. And every, 19 out of 20 times, every time she burped, the teacher ran over and gave her attention. And right. the burping stopped. Now, the attention was a little bit different. Sometimes she'd redirect her. Sometimes she'd offer her a choice. Sometimes, you know, but it was always teacher attention, 19 out of 20 times. So when we showed that to the teacher, I said, so let's think proactively how you can give her attention on the front side that'll stop that burping behavior. So we made her, the little girl, Vanna White, and you guys might not have um, the game that has Vanna White in it, but we made her like the hostess of the daily schedule. Or mm -hmm. Vanna White is a game on TV um, right. we have here in the United States. And she's a model who gets paid millions of dollars to turn letters over. So we oh made this little girl, yeah, everybody's yeah. dream job. Um, we made this little girl the spokesperson for the daily schedule. And what that did, it made the teacher go over and tell her what they were doing next before the transition. And so then the little girl got up, went and flipped the schedule, you know, flipped what was finished backwards and then said, class, it's time for reading. Please open your reading books to page 147. And that gave the little girl a replacement behavior that got her the attention, but we gave her the attention side and she only burped one more time um i think just to test the water a little bit but just to see what had happened <laughs> well and we told the teacher if she burps ignore it look the other way give attention to another student and the minute she's quiet give her attention and that's hard when you've 19 out of 20 times been more likely to run over and give her attention on the front side Mm. Uh, for example, I worked with a school when I ran the day clinic, we had a, a child that from the age of three to the age of 11, he had autism, intellectual disabilities, didn't use words to communicate. He jumped up and down four hours a day screaming. And oh, the, my goodness. Yeah. And at the end of four hours, he would go horizontal with his mouth open and he would bite. And every time he did that, for, from three to 11, so for eight years oh my goodness. Um, 
the school called mom and said, mom, come get your child. So what they did, they, they actually caused their own physical pain. Somebody got bit every day because they taught the child, if you scream for four hours and bite somebody, you get to go home. Yes. Exactly where this child wanted to be. Right. So, yeah, we brought him into the clinic and we patted ourselves up so that you know, he couldn't hurt us. And, mm. we, you know, I taught everybody in the clinic how to avoid bites and how to block a bite, you know, we wore arm pads on our arms and how to put our arms. Most women had been bit in the chest area. That was his height. So Rush. that area would come for. So we had under our clothes an umpire vest and then uh, shin guards on, under our shirts um, on our arms. And we could put our arm up so that he would actually bite our arm that was very thickly padded. And we just acted like nothing happened. And I told mom, go get a job. I promise you I will never call you to come get this child because of biting or behavior for any reason. Mm. And um, I said, I'll call you and tell you good things, but I'm never going to call you and tell you to come get your child. And uh, he stopped biting within three weeks. I mean, and wow. for eight years of having that behavior, that was a pretty quick catching on to that behavior doesn't pay off anymore. And yes. He ended up doing all the same work as all the moderate students. He really was quite brilliant. Wow. Um, they, they just had caused their own pain by sending mm. him home. Yeah. So I could give you millions of examples. I'm sure, yes. To that pop into. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Mind. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we've just got two more questions. So what are, I guess, I know you will have millions of these as well, but maybe one or two key strategies uh, for teachers, for students whose behaviour would be red zone behaviour, so in that tertiary level. Right. I, I go back to the same sort of thing, though. I think the biggest strategy is to think proactively. Yes. And, and that's hard, but just when you get home at night, think about, go through the behaviors that happen and think about these three things. What you need to know, I call them the triple T's. What was the trigger that set that behavior in motion? Uh -huh. you know, and a lot of times we don't think there is one, but if we really think hard about it, there really was some kind of trigger because we need to intervene before that trigger. And then uh, what was the behavior you want to target for change? So that's the second T, the target. Yep. And I always call it the I always call the behavior the target behavior. We used to call it the bad behavior and the problem behavior. And the truth is that kind of makes you start to think differently about the child. And the truth is we love the child. We don't yes. want the child yeah. to disappear. We want the behavior. So we're targeting the behavior. So I call it the trigger and the target. And then the last one, we call it the consequence in AB. A terms, mm. but that confuses a lot of people because they think of consequences of punishment. Yes. So I changed it to impact with a capital T. So those are my triple T's. So impact is the capital T on the right. end of impact. The so impact, what was, yeah. yeah, what were they getting or what were they getting out of by having this behavior? And uh, so sit down and if you can write those three things down, then you can proactively put a plan in place. And there's three things that you need to put in place. So I call them the triple R. Um, 
Um, I like mnemonics that help you remember. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the first thing that you have to do is revise the environment to set the student up for success. And that might be your red bracelet that you wear. It might be some little secret code that you have set up in the environment. It might be a certain worksheet. You give the student double what you want them to do and tell them they can only do half. So they have some autonomy over which problems they do. And, you know, so that's a proactive environmental strategy that you might have in place. They might be wearing a vibrating watch that vibrates every seven minutes to remind them themselves you know there's just a myriad of things that could be an environmental cue to help the child uh, be successful and then the second R stands for replace the behavior huh. again we can't just say don't stop quit or no we've got to teach them what we want them to do instead so when you're feeling all bouncy and you feel like you need to get up and run around the room, here's a stretchy band we're going to put on the two front legs of your chair and I want you to put your foot on it and bounce your foot or put your foot behind it and push against it. You know, give them some replacement behavior proactively that will help them with what it is that they're needing to do or wanting to do. And then the last V R is reframe our response. And that's the hardest. That's the one we hate the most, but we have to realize that we are causing our own pain and not to feed the target behavior, but feed the replacement behavior. Yes. the impact that the student's going for is to get adult attention. We don't give them attention for running around the room. We give them attention every time they use their replacement behavior that we taught them. And if we haven't taught them a replacement behavior, we really can't be angry with them for running around the room because we haven't taught them what to do. Right. So I call it the triple T, triple R. And I think that if teachers could use that, it will really help those kids in the red zone and it will help you go home at night feeling much more relaxed. Um, And you just have to sit down at night when you're not having 50 things coming at you. Yes, and yeah, moments of calm and just reflect. Yeah, pour Mm. yourself a great big glass of iced tea and just sit down. (laughs) Have some M and M's, little dark chocolates, always good. Always good, yeah. Always helps you. Yeah, yeah. and just think about. And a lot of times, people want to focus on eight behaviors, and I'm like, okay, what one behavior? If that went away, your life would be better. And I always say it's like Shel Silverstein's poem, "How to Eat a Hippo Sandwich," one bite at a time. So let's take one behavior and focus on that. And if you can get that one behavior under control, typically what happens is a lot of the other behaviors disappear yes yeah it's like dominoes effect isn't it it really is yeah um so don't try to focus on all eight what one would make your life better yeah 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 that would really help yeah that's Um, great thank you that's wonderful now our last question is so what are you currently curious about with regards to positive behavior support and challenging behavior I really hope a lot of people are um, interested in this, and that's neuroplasticity. I might not be saying that correctly because I only learned this term by reading about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been reading a ton about it, but it's really cool. It's about the brain's ability to like reorganize all those synapses and connections up there. Yes. Um, and the treatment that they're uh, 
thinking about is how to teach um, students how to turn off those negative thought patterns, how to not feed. It's like a muscle in your brain, and the more you feed it, the more you feed the fear, or the more you feed um, those ki those kinds of behaviors grow. And if you can feed your strength, um, so it's about teaching students about their brain and mm. about. Isn't that, I mean, I just think that's so cool. And I think kids, the kids that I have worked with, and I've kind of taught them a little bit about brain stem or lizard brain and the synapses firing up in the front part of the brain. And depending on the age of the child, I'll go into deeper and use more terminology. Mm. But I always, I use my fist and I kind of show them, you know, like my thumb is the brain stem and I tuck that under and I make the synapses uh, move up and down over the thumb, you know, and it makes it look like a little brain. Um, and I just, I really like everything that I'm reading about this, and I'd love to take some classes myself. Um, in the 1980s, I got really interested in cognitive behavior therapy. All right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to do my doctorate in cognitive behavior therapy, but my mentoring professor said there wasn't enough information out there at the time. Right. Uh, to do a doctorate on it, but um, I, I would just really like to study mm. neuroplasticity. And yeah, I think all of that brain um, research and the neuroscience. I know in the the um, the reading and the work with you know TIPBS with trauma and things like that. I'm you learn so much because probably the same as you, Laura, when I, I mean, way back when I did my teacher training, I mean, education and psychology here in Australia were two very, very separate things. And you did your teacher education and the psychology people did the psychology stuff and we right. never had any overlap. I, until I started learning about, you know, how trauma affects the brain and like you said, it alters, alters the composition of the young child's brain and everything you think oh wish somebody had told me that <laughs> I know I know oh, if I'd known that I would have behaved this diff you know a different way when this happened when this happened when this happened yeah um, yeah I know amazing. every day I learn something new and I think how did I work with kids before I knew this and then yes. I like how did I work with kids before I knew this Mm, and you're thinking, it's oh my goodness. So it's such a great field to be in. Because it's wonderful. Yeah, it is. So many avenues to try. There's always another thing that you can try to help kids be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Laura, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm sure that our listeners are extremely grateful for your wisdom and advice. And thank you for your commitment to helping our children who are demonstrating challenging behaviour so that they can re-engage in their learning. Um, I hope we get a chance to speak again. And I'll say to everybody who is listening, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see everybody next time. Okay, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed um, getting to talk to you about behaviour and uh, hope everybody likes the information that I shared. And oh, yes, I'm sure we will. It's wonderful. Thank you very much. That was our interview with Dr. Laura Riffle. Thank you to Laura for volunteering to share her wisdom and experience. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting www.tipbs.com. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. 
Your ratings make all the difference. Thanks for listening. See you next time.